This is producer Will Erskine coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Remnants of Hurricane Ida batter the eastern U.S. Is this going to be a common occurrence? Get ready for the Labor Day Classic. Vaccine certificates, mandates, and the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, we cover it all. Protesters targeting healthcare workers and hospitals. Where is the rage coming from? And on the day after the federal leaders debate, Ontario's government is prorogued. Here it comes. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Will Erskine, Scott's producer. When the kids are away, the producer is the one to pick up the slack. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's your host. You know him. You love him. It's Scott Thompson. Clearly, we have to start holding auditions. I don't think the kids are taking this seriously anymore. I don't know. Maybe September. Maybe school has something to do with that. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station. Keeping us upright. Jump into the fun on this all request Friday. Heading into a long weekend and a Labor Day classic. All right. Um, you know, I, I, we all had, I guess, uh, in the back of our mind that Hurricane Ida was on its way up the East Coast. But I think what happened and what we saw the images out of uh, New York State, New York City uh, last night were just absolutely bizarre. Here's a report from Global's Reggie Cicchini. The strongest storm of the season decimated entire communities along the U.S. Gulf Coast. We're all in this together. On Friday, the president will tour some of the hardest-hit parishes in Louisiana, where a scorching sun has only added to the agony as residents line up for life-saving necessities. Across Pennsylvania, where raging rivers waterlogged Philadelphia and its suburbs, water has started to recede, bringing the scope of damage into focus. Some highways are still impassable, resembling rivers. We experienced a historic storm here all across the Commonwealth. FEMA has been dispatched in seven states to assist with devastation wrought by Ida, but building back is up against a clock. Peak hurricane season is still more than a week away. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Philadelphia. All right. Again, we're we're used to hearing of this stuff in the South and such, and in a long tornado alley, uh, typically, but in places like New York City, certainly not. Let's bring in Steve Easterbrook, director of the School of the Environment, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Steve, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, yeah, thank you. Delighted to be here. Uh, Steve, first of all, your thoughts on the images we saw uh, of New York City, specifically their their subway system and such. My goodness, um, your thoughts. Yeah, it, it reminded me of um, Hurricane Sandy back in, in 2012, uh, which, I mean, that one hit New York dead on and uh, again flooded the, the subway system. So, yeah, I mean, this is kind of what we expect with hurricanes as the atmosphere warms. The air holds a lot more moisture. So the hurricane just keeps on going and keeps on dumping more and more water, even as, even as it's moving across land. And we, we expect a hurricane to die out once it travels across the land, but they, they keep on going. They've been supercharged. They keep going. Uh, you bring up a valid point because, again, uh, I don't mean to flip-flop here, but uh, speaking about hur- hurricanes, usually once they do hit land, they uh, quite quickly neutralize. Why is that not happening now? Yeah, I mean, what we've found with climate change is the hurricanes are slower moving, which gives them an opportunity to pick up more moisture and they just last longer. So they do fizzle out over land, but because they've been supercharged 
um, you know, especially with Ida, as it moved across the Gulf of Mexico, it hit warmer waters and picked up more energy. So it intensified very, very rapidly just before it hit New Orleans. And that extra energy just gave it the push to just keep going further across the land. Did we see this coming? Did we predict this? Uh, obviously, Ida was on the radar. It seems to have taken uh, us by surprise. Yeah, yes and no. Um, so it was a surprise that this hurricane intensified as rapidly as it did. I mean, we knew pretty much it was coming. We knew where it was heading. We knew it was going to hit roughly around New Orleans and then travel inland. That was all predicted. That rapid intensification, I think, did take everybody by surprise. Uh, how long have you noticed the trend in, as you mentioned, slower storms uh, that have a, a greater time to pick up uh, moisture, though therefore lasting longer going inland? When did we start to see this? Uh, because, again, it doesn't follow the traditional framework. Yeah, I mean, we've kind of known for about a decade or so, maybe about 15 years what these, um, what climate change does to the hurricanes. And, and there's three or four impacts that all come together. So one is they move more slowly. Um, and that's due to uh, kind of more equalization of the, um, uh, the upper atmosphere temperatures as you move north and south. So, so the hurricanes hover in one place for longer. The Oceans are warmer, so they sit over warm oceans for longer, and that's what gives them their energy. Um, and, and then, of course, um, there's another factor here, which is sea level rise. When they hit the coast, they bring with them these storm surges, and the sea level rise in increases the total storm surge. So you get all of these impacts coming together. And for a long time, I mean, if you go back maybe 20 years, it really wasn't clear what the relationship would be. You know, people weren't sure whether we'd get more hurricanes, um, whether they'd be uh, bigger hurricanes or whatever. Um, but gradually the, uh, um, the pattern became clear. We're not getting more hurricanes, but the hurricanes we're getting are more intense. So we're getting more of those uh, 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 super intense hurricanes, um, more category four, more category five. And then when it comes to the question of, well, are they going to hit land more often? Probably not. I mean, it's a huge matter of luck where and when a hurricane hits land. Some of them never hit land at all. But of course, for us, that's when the damage happens, when the hurricane comes on land. And it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, you roll the dice to figure out where, where exactly it's going to, where it's going to hit and who it's going to affect. Obviously, uh, we've come a long way in predicting these sorts of things, but are we able to predict their speed and intensity? That appears where we're catch it's catching us off guard. Yeah, I mean, we have lots of different models that attempt to predict once a storm starts to form, to predict its track, to predict how it will intensify. And those models are pretty good. Um, we're, we're able, the storm tracking models, and there's, there's a big difference. Some of the models do better historically in tracking storms than others. So we've, we've got pretty good, um, pretty good models for tracking uh, the storm. And if you know, if you've got good readings of ocean temperatures, you can predict to some degree, you know, whether they're going to strengthen or weaken as they move around. Um, and I don't think the predictions have got any better or any worse there is a worry with the models that the more the climate changes, the less we're able to test the models because we we, we're experiencing situations we've never seen before. So there is a worry 
with climate change, uh, with all weather predictions, that they might become less reliable? Um, what you talked about, obviously, uh, over water, that's when these storms, uh, pick up fuel and, and, and such. What drives them inward? What, and you said you couldn't really predict when they or, or how or, or they were going to come, uh, inland. But, 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 but what does drive them there? What, what changes the tra- trajectory? Cause you think they would follow the trail of energy. Yeah, no, it's it's largely to do just with with the patterns of um, winds in the upper atmosphere, and so it in, it entirely depends, you know, on the days when the hurricane is is forming and intensifying, what those upper atmosphere patterns look like, and those are that's probably one of the easiest things to predict in uh, in weather forecasting. Those upper upper atmosphere patterns they they tend to change fairly slowly once we see a pattern forming. Um, we can predict it. So those just drive the hurricane in a particular direction, and a hurricane can go in almost any, uh, almost any direction. They won't, they won't ever cross the equator. But once they start to form, they can travel north, they can travel east, they can double back, travel uh, west again, and so on. So they, it all depends on on what those wind patterns look like on the days when the hurricane is there. Uh, won't the new models, as they change, help predict? Uh, as the weather changes, will it will it change the prediction uh, process, the predicting process? No, I don't think so. I mean, weather prediction is it's it's a well established uh, science, and we tweak the models every year. We get slightly better forecasts just because we get faster computers. They're able to do more. They're able to take into to account more data. Um, so, so in general, weather forecasting improves a little bit year by year. Um, but as I said, you set that against um, what's happening with climate change, where the base conditions are a little different from how they've been in the past. And, and maybe those two things cancel out a little bit. So I'm not expecting forecasting to be any better or any worse in the future. What can we learn from Ida, Steve? Uh, climate change. Here it is. There it is. Take a peek. That's what it looks like. Is, is, it, is it that obvious? Does this smack our conscience? Yeah. I mean, people talk about, um, oh, this is, this is the new norm. We have to get used to it. Um, and, and I'm not sure that's the right way to think about it. Um, we know the IPCC released a, a new report um, in August, um, and it, it set out kind of where we are and where we're going. So the planet has warmed by about a degree, little over a degree centigrade over the past century or so. We know that there is more warming in the pipeline. We're expecting about another half a degree over the next decade or two. So where we are today is we're on a path and the world will get a little warmer before we we get ahead of this problem and, and start dealing with it. So all of these challenges will get worse. So, I mean, my, my favorite analogy here is you take a couple of a dice and add one dot to every face. And so an extreme event like Ida might have been you were rolling a 12 in the past when you roll the two dice. And we can still now throw 12s with our new modified dice. They'll come up more often because there's more ways of rolling a 12. And then occasionally we'll roll a 13 or a 14. And, and it's very hard to say, you know, what rolling a 14 might look like. Uh, how much of a difference can we make uh, from a Canadian perspective, considering where we are on the planet, 
and from a world perspective, you, you know, we always hear, you know, China's got to get on board, India's got to get on board, uh, the U.S. obviously getting on board. Uh, how much of a dent can we make? Yeah, well, um, Canada has one of the worst per capita emissions around the world. So we definitely, yeah. we're responsible. We have a lot of heavy lifting to do. We're essentially um, an oil exporting nation. So we're contributing to the problem. Um, the, the only way to stop the planet warming further is to reach global net zero emissions. So that, that means no more uh, greenhouse gases being added to the atmosphere at all. And it's going to take us, no matter what we do, it's going to take us a few decades to get there. There's just yeah. so much infrastructure, so much of our energy infrastructure has to change in order to get there. Uh, what, what matters, that the earlier we get there, the less warming we'll have experienced along the way. So it's an urgent problem. And I mean, from my perspective, one of the most important things Canada can do is to start answering this question, how do we make this transition away from fossil fuels? How do we wind down the existing uh, fossil fuel infrastructure in a way that's fair, in a, fa a way that treats workers fairly, in a way that treats the companies involved fairly, but, but as fast as possible does wind it down and transition us into alternative forms of energy? Are you concerned, Steve, that this debate is happening on the extremes and not as you just said? Yeah, um, I mean, nearly all of the debate on what we do about climate change frustrates me. Um, that there's, hmm. there's way too much political posturing. There's way too many people kind of using it as uh, you know, a kind of excuse to drive a wedge between people. Um, to my mind, what we do about climate change absolutely has to be a coming together. Um, there has to be a consensus about uh, how we make this transition. So, yeah, um, less less posturing and more, you know, let's roll up our sleeves and figure out how to do this. Climate change is a coming together. That's what very well said. Well put. Right. Steve Easterbrook Absolutely. is uh, Steve Easterbrook is with us, director of the School of the Environment, University of Toronto, talking about Hurricane Ida and, of course, the path uh, it left along the eastern seaboard of the United States. Steve, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Yeah, thank you very much. All right, Labor Day Classic weekend in the Hammer. Should be a pretty good weekend, too, uh, although we may see a slight chance of rain. But, man, I think you say that all the time in the summer. Uh, temperatures around 22 degrees, so it uh, should be good for the annual Labor Day uh, Classic. Let's bring in Rick Zamperin, host of the fifth quarter, uh, sports director, news director, assistant program director, and pretty much everything else right here at Global News Radio, 900 CHML. Rick is with us now. Ricky, uh, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing fantastic. How are you? I'm doing good. This is pretty exciting. Always exciting when the Labor Day Classic uh, comes around. Uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about COVID-19. How has the league managed its way through this? Is all Do we have the all-clear sign? Well, there have been some bumps in the road. Uh, certainly the most noticeable one in Edmonton with the Elks, where they basically had their uh, previous game against the Argonauts a week ago postponed because of an outbreak uh, amongst Elks players and some coaches. So they've rescheduled that game for November 16th. Um, you know, beyond that, you know, some positive cases here and there, nothing in the outbreak stage. 
Um, and in terms of, you know, the go forward plan, it seems like more and more players and, and, and those around the teams are getting vaccinated. So hopefully, you know, knock on wood, we won't have any more postponed games. But as we know, with whether it's the first wave or the fourth wave that we're in, uh, you know, this, this uh, virus can throw us a curveball uh, or can sack us at times. I should use the appropriate puns. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we should never say that we're in the clear. And that, that goes for the CFL as, uh, as well. All right, we we certainly know what this event means to the CFL, means to the Ticat fans, it means just to the city of Hamilton. It, it's it's an event as much as it is uh, a a football game. Difference between this edition of the Labor Day Classic as compared to those prior to a pandemic. Well, yeah, I think you know the, the big thing is the pandemic, and there's not going to be a full house at Tim Hortons Field, and that's not because people aren't interested; it's because they won't be allowed to go. Uh, as we know, we're still in stage three of the pandemic protocol here in Ontario, so that uh, maxes out for an outdoor venue like Tim Hortons Field at uh, at seventy five percent. So we'll see upwards of fifteen thousand fans in the seats. Uh, it's it's totally contactless, no cash payments. Everything is you know through your phone. Uh, or through your debit card, uh, they're not accepting cash. Uh, in terms of the action on the field, that'll be the same. You know, we're we're into week uh, five of the CFL. This will be the fourth game for the Tiger Cats. Uh, they're hungry to you know continue to put W's in that column. The Argonauts are Hamilton's arch rival. So in terms of the football action on the field, there's not going to be that much difference, other than you know some new players here and there. But the the rivalry, the buzz around the city, the feel of the game, the importance of the Labor Day Classic is all going to be there. Yeah, it might be only half a stadium, but there'll certainly be uh, full spirit there. Uh, any any new directives for fans that are going to the game? Is there things they have to do, things they can't do? Well, it's yeah, it's some of the things that we've already seen in other venues, whether it's you know the Dome in Toronto or even some stadiums in uh, in the U.S. It's you know masking at times, except for when you're eating or drinking. It's you know uh, maintaining that physical distance, so fans will be seated accordingly throughout the stadium. When it comes to the concourse, you know it's going to be those lines that are physically distanced. Uh, and even you know, getting into the station, uh, getting into the stadium, fans are being told to go to certain gates. No different than us in the media. There, there's a protocol that's in place for us on where to pick up our passes, what time we got to be there, where we're going to be sitting in the in the press box. You know, we're going to be separated as well. It's only going to be 50% capacity. So. It's yeah, it's the new world that we live in, but uh, I think we'll get used to it uh, pretty quickly. All right, let's talk about these two teams and when you're and what you are expecting uh, on Labor Day. I'm expecting a really good game. You know, there's there's a lot of new players, especially on Toronto, and there's you know a handful of new guys in Hamilton, but they are quickly brought up to speed on the importance of this rivalry game. This is really, in essence, apart from the Grey Cup the biggest game on the calendar. And that's not just saying that for Toronto and Hamilton, but certainly when Saskatchewan and Winnipeg duke it out this weekend, that's their biggest game of the year. Ottawa and Montreal tonight, that's their biggest game of the year. These Labor Day games, Calgary and Edmonton on Monday, the late game, these Labor Day games are so huge because you know these teams for generations have hated each other. These fan bases, there's a mutual respect there, but they want to beat the other side. So it's two huge points in the standings because, as we know, this year it's only 14 games in the CFL except uh, instead of the usual 18 because of the pandemic. So every game has a little bit more importance to it than a regular, quote-unquote, season. So whoever picks up the win on Monday at Tim Hortons Field, it's a 1 o'clock kickoff, uh, they know that going into the rematch on Friday in Toronto is going to give them a leg up in that, uh, in that uh, the second half of that doubleheader. 
Uh, lots of pent-up energy, both in the stands and on the field. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you talk about Hamilton football Labor mm. Day. There's a passion there. You know, there was no CFL last year. Yeah. This is not only the Labor Day Classic, but Hamilton's home opener as well. So there's a real hunger to finally see this team in action live in you know the stadium that we all love. So, yeah, there's a lot of pent-up energy for sure. Do you want to make a prediction, Rick? Uh, I will make a prediction. I think the Tiger Cats are going to come out strong. And uh, not to sound like a homer, but I think they're going to beat up on the Toronto Argonauts. It's Labor Day. It's going to be loud. I know it's not going to be packed, but this team, I think, is going to feed off the energy of finally playing in front of a home crowd. I'm going to go Ticats 28, Argos 20. 28-20, says Rick. And, of course, the fifth quarter afterwards. Yes, you got it. Yeah, we're going to have a two-hour pregame show. On Monday from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., kickoff as this is at 1. The fifth quarter will launch in and around 4 o'clock when the final whistle has sounded. And hopefully we are reminiscing about a Ticats Labor Day victory once again over those bad guys down the road. All right, Rick Zamprin with us, host of the fifth quarter and, of course, sports director at CHML. And we'll be there both at the beginning and the end of all of this. Rick, uh, thanks so much for the time. Going to be another barn burner. Uh, have a great weekend. You too. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, we've talked about vaccine passports probably till, uh, you know, I'm sick of it. You're sick of it. We're all sick of it. Uh, that being said, the push is on to get everybody vaccinated. And that's, what, of course, everybody is, is, is telling you to do, including myself, fully vaccinated. It, it is the way we're going to get out of this. Uh, but, uh, and I've, I've talked at length about vaccine passports and, and, and a lot of people held these up as, as the be all and end all. Um, you know, again, and then there's, whether it's a provincial, whether it's a federal passport, what's the proper way to do this, uh, and, and not create more, uh, chaos than, than we already have. Uh, not sure what all the legalities are. I think a lot of people aren't sure what mandatory means, uh, when it comes to vaccination. Uh, again, the vast majority of Canadians, Ontarians getting vaccinated, which is great to see. Uh, it's the push to get the rest of uh, Canadians vaccinated, which uh, is obviously the challenge. Let's bring in Paul Daly, University Research Chair in Administrative Law and Governance, Associate associate Professor, Faculty of Law, and is with us now. Paul, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Well, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, double vaccinated. So, uh, you know, uh, feeling feeling good about my place in the world, at least. Good for you. Uh, feel the same way. So your thoughts on where we are with vaccine passports. Uh, I'll ask you what is mandatory after that, but you can take them in either order. Well, we're uh, moving slowly towards a position uh, in Ontario where you are going to have to show proof of vaccination to uh, frequent if uh, non-essential services like uh, restaurants and gyms and so on. Um, the uh, passport will be operational later this month and it's going to be fully operational by the end of October. Ontario is a little bit behind Quebec uh, where they uh, already have a, a vaccine passport and they've been rolling it out over the last uh, over the last few weeks. Uh, we're also seeing various businesses like the Royal Bank of Canada uh, implementing vaccine mandates for their workers. Uh, my university, the University of Ottawa, has a mandatory vaccine policy. Anyone who wants to come on campus has to provide proof of vaccination. Um, so that's where we are. We're slowly getting into a position where the range of activities that people want to engage in in their daily lives uh, is going to be restricted if they haven't been vaccinated and have proof of vaccination. 
Now that we are at this point, Paul, there's lots of discussion about what people can do, what people can't do, what mandatory means, what are uh, people's uh, rights and such, Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Help us out with that. Is there any sort of clear-cut uh, answer? What What is mandatory, and, and, and what does mandatory mean? Well, the... The constitutional question is, is you know, the basic question is, is pretty simple. Um, there is no constitutional right to work in a hospital, to work in a long-term care home, to go eat in a restaurant, to attend university. There's no constitutional right to engage in these things. There might be, uh, I think it's doubtful, and you can have an argument, it's debatable. Uh, it might be that you, can, uh, you have a constitutional right to refuse a vaccine uh, because you have religious objections or for some other reason, um, but uh, there is no uh, constitutional right uh, to uh, be unvaccinated and go to university, work in a hospital, or eat in a restaurant. There's no constitutional right there, and it's, it's important to make that clear. Um, what we see uh, in terms of mandatory uh, when uh, businesses or universities or provincial governments roll out vaccine passports is that unless you have some sort of medical reason which justifies you in refusing a vaccine, and there are people who can't get vaccinated for uh, health reasons, uh, if you can provide uh, proof that you are exempt from uh, a vaccine, well, then you don't have to. Uh, you don't have to have the vaccine. You might have to. Uh, you might have to undergo rapid testing, regular testing, or something, uh, something like that, to contribute to making the the workplace or the university or the restaurant safe. Um, but it's not mandatory in that sense for people who have identifiable health conditions uh, who are exempt. But for everyone else, uh, for those of us who do not have uh, an an exemption on the basis of a a good health reason, uh, if you want to engage in activities like going to the University of Ottawa, working in the Royal Bank of Canada, or eating uh, in your local restaurant, uh, you have to be able to provide proof of vaccination. So that's what mandatory means. So let me ask you this question. Um, in regard to a vaccine passport, say I have a medical condition and I can't be vaccinated. Would like to, but I can't. Would that be on my vaccine passport? So when I go into a non-essential place of business like a restaurant and they say, well, you got to show proof of vaccine, uh, here's my card. But what my card says is the reason that I cannot be vaccinated. Will it be that clear or will the people who cannot be vaccinated, not by choice, will they have to provide some other sort of documentation? No, there there should be uh, some sort of official documentation that you can provide, which is a, a proof of exemption. So it's not that the uh, the server in the right. restaurant is going to have to go and, and verify everything. It'll be clear. Either you have a vaccine passport or you have proof of exemption. If you don't have either of those, well, um, you're going to um, have to go home and fry some eggs for your dinner. Uh, now, is it up to the individual business to decide whether to let the unvaccinated in or will that be covered? Because it seems there's two dis- discussions with a vaccine passport. One is the actual document. Is it secure? Can it be forged? Uh, how do we make it convenient? And then there's what that document means, what it gets you into. And I think we've had a lot of discussion about the actual document itself, but not much about you know who decides who gets to go where. 
Well, you know, the, 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 there's been a lot of discussion about this for sure, um, but I'm, I'm not sure how complicated this uh, this is really. I mean, if you think about uh, selling uh, selling tobacco products to, uh, to people uh, under the legal age or selling alcohol uh, to people under the legal age, well, a business has an obligation to verify the person's age. Uh, if they, you know, you might, you know, someone might get away with a, a fake ID um, and they might get away with a fake vaccine passport and um you know that that might happen um, but if the business is not checking appropriately making it appropriate checks well then the business is liable it can be it can be fined it can be prosecuted and it will be the same way under the vaccine passports you might have people slipping through even though the business did everything it could to verify that the passport was in order but uh, if the the business is is not doing its job ultimately that's going to be uh, something which is which is checked by uh, local officials and by the police, um, and the business will be exposing itself to liability, um, financial liability, if it uh, criminal uh, liability potentially, if it does not ensure that it has a robust system in place for checking that people have proper vaccine passports. What do you think the biggest challenges will be moving forward uh, implementing a vaccine passport? It seems there's a lot of people uh, concerned now. Uh, I, I think a lot of people thought this was a silver bullet and would solve a lot of problems. And it seems that it, it's obviously uh, increased questions. Now, the good news in all of this is that it was hoped that this would speed up vaccination. And it looks like that is, in fact, happening. But where, where do you see the challenges for, for businesses moving forward on this? I, I can certainly understand that uh, the businesses uh, and business people are are nervous. Uh, you know, uh, they want to uh, make sure that they're they're able to uh, keep open safely. Um, they might be worried about uh, dealing with customers who are uh, you know who aren't vaccinated and who uh, who insist uh, that they should be allowed to uh, frequent the business uh, nonetheless. Um, but you know, we've seen the vaccine passport being rolled out in Quebec seems to have gone uh, pretty smoothly so far. Um, And uh, like I say, we've had requirements in place for tobacco sales and alcohol sales for for decades now. And uh, businesses, responsible businesses, have been uh, applying those um, as best they can um, for uh, for many decades. And uh, well, that's all uh, anyone uh, will ever ask for, for businesses to to do the best they can. And uh, if the province uh, puts in place a uh, passport system which is you know not easily forgeable which is easily verifiable uh, that should uh, take some of the the pressure and stress off uh, business owners business people and really do you see this being any more difficult than say the masking mandate was where you know you walk up to the door and it says right there you don't have a mask you're not coming in will it be the same with a with a vaccine certificate or passport it it, it, it probably won't be much different will it I, I wouldn't think so. I mean, if you look at uh, what happens other in, in other parts of the world uh, where there are uh, vaccine passports and you've had mask mandates, uh, there might always be a, a minority of people who will, uh, you know, re- refuse to uh, refuse to comply. Um, but in the end, you know, if, if someone turns up in a restaurant and they uh, they want to, to sit down and the uh, you know they they don't have the uh, the vaccination, uh, the, the proof of vaccination, um, it's going to be, I, I think it's 
pretty difficult for that person to uh, to, to come and, and make a fuss at the uh, at the door. Um, I can understand that uh, businesses might be uh, might be concerned about that, um, but I think um, you know uh, we we can trust uh, people to largely comply with the regulations, uh, just as people have largely complied with uh, with mask mandates. And, and as you say. Um, since the vaccine passports have been announced in Quebec, uh, the same in Ontario, we've seen the uh, the number of vaccine appointments uh, tick up uh, pretty quickly, uh, doubling, uh, in fact. And that, I think, uh, suggests that there's um, an appetite on people's behalf to be compliant and to respect the law, respect the regulations. Are you surprised it's taken that, Paul, to give that extra shove? Well, <laughs> I, I need... I, I know need that's not necessary. I, I I'm not... Lane. I know that I realize it's out of your lane, but uh, I, I, you know, I, I thought for sure you'd see a bit of an uptake, but I didn't think it would be that great. But I guess that says something about about us. Uh, let me ask you this, uh, because this is more da- this is in your lane. So, Paul, and I'm sure you've you've had this anecdotally. What do you say when people come up to you and say this violates my charter of rights? Well, uh, well. So the first thing to say is, you know, if there's a vaccination policy at a, a workplace or a business uh, or a university, that doesn't violate anyone's charter rights. Uh, because you don't have a charter right to go work in a particular place, go right. study at a particular university, go eat in a restaurant. Now, the other question is, is there a, an interference with someone's charter rights? And yes, there is. Uh, if you're being forced to be, no, well, no, no one's being forced to be vaccinated, right? So there's no uh, violation of anyone's charter rights. But even if you did have a province-wide or nationwide uh, vaccine mandate, so an obligatory vaccination for everybody, even if you had that, I'm not sure it would ultimately violate the Charter, because the thing about the, the Charter is that the rights in the Charter are subject to restrictions. They can be limited where those limitations are necessary in a democratic society. That's what the Charter says, Section 1 of the Charter. Now, that means there's what we call a proportionality test. And the court, uh, if there's a challenge to a vaccine mandate, someone says, look, this violates my right to uh, liberty, to security of the person, my right to make religious objections. Um, The court will look at whether there is a rational basis for imposing a vaccine mandate. The court will look at the evidence and say uh, and and determine whether uh, it's uh, whether there's a a relationship between what the government wants to achieve, which is the elimination of the virus, say, uh, and the, the vaccine mandate that it's using. And when it comes to questions of public health, where there's evidence uh, which supports a particular policy, and here you have the Delta variant of COVID-19, which is a really transmissible um, virus which uh, spreads very quickly, and even uh, young, healthy people, if you infect enough of them, uh, you'll end up with uh, lots of people in hospital and in uh, ICUs, which has knock-on effects for, for everyone else because the healthcare system uh, becomes overloaded. In a case like that, where there's evidence that this could happen, and where the government is making a, uh, a judgment about how to balance people's rights and their economic interests and all the rest of it, uh, in cases like that, the courts would be very reluctant to uh, interfere. Uh, we're very reluctant to say that's disproportionate. There was a case about 15 years ago out in Alberta. Uh, it was um, a group of religious people, the Hutterian Brotherhood, they didn't want uh, their photographs taken for valid religious reasons to be put on driver's licenses. In that case, went all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court of Canada said, 
you can, uh, the province can require uh, the Hutterian Brotherhood to have their photographs taken, even though it's a violation of their religious freedom, because otherwise the security of the driver's license system would be compromised. You'd have yeah. people who didn't have, who didn't have their photos on their driver's license. Now, uh, the point is, if even with driver's licenses, uh, a court is, is going to say that it's proportionate to limit someone's religious freedom, I think the argument is all the stronger when you're dealing with a deadly transmissible disease like COVID-19. Uh, privilege versus rights. Uh, interesting because uh, the provincial NDP leader said it's not right that uh, it, uh, people that go into a restaurant, for example, have to be vaccinated but the employees don't. That's exactly what that is about, is it not? I mean, you, you, you know, having a job is different than entering a restaurant. I think if the, the, province, if the province took the view that it should um, have a vaccine mandate for people who are working in non-essential businesses and anyone who's, who's meeting members of the public, if the province decided to pass legislation and uh, impose a vaccine mandate to make sure that restaurant workers were also vaccinated and other workers who come into contact with the public. Uh, I, I, I think that would probably be constitutional. Now, whether you want to do it or not, it's a policy matter. Uh, for moral or philosophical reasons, that's another question. But would it be constitutional? Well, yes, I, I think it would. Again, you don't have a constitutional right to work in a restaurant. Um, should a passport system be a, a a federal responsibility or should it be a provincial? Is it better to have one system across all or uh, provincial systems, uh, some are calling it a patchwork? I think there's there's something to be said as a as a policy matter for having a a federal uh, vaccine passport or at least a uh, a uniform format. You wouldn't need the federal government to uh, to create a uniform format. The provinces can get together themselves and agree. Um, I mean, don't don't laugh. I mean, it, it could it could happen. There's nothing stopping the provinces from from doing that, and that would certainly uh, certainly facilitate things. Does could the federal government create a vaccine passport? It absolutely could. I mean, normally, this is the sort of thing which falls under provincial responsibility: drivers' licenses, health cards, uh, identity cards, things like that. That's uh, normally a, a provincial responsibility, but the federal government uh, has powers to spend money uh, to create programs, um, and this would be a, a program it could spend money to create. There wouldn't be any constitutional problem with that. Uh, so the federal government could do it. Um, uh, maybe they should do it. Um, if they didn't do it, the provinces uh, could, do it, uh, could do it amongst themselves. Uh, Paul, will we still be talking about this one month from now, that being vaccine passports, or will we have moved on just like the face mask debate and everything else in this pandemic? Well, you know, uh, like uh, like many of your listeners, I have uh, I have small uh, small kids who uh, who go to school and they they mm-hmm. wear masks and they have to respect the distancing rules. And at least once a week, uh, one of them says, uh, "When is this going to end?" And uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, sometimes we have to uh, sometimes we pretend that uh, everything's going to be over uh, very soon. But uh, I think uh, deep down we know that. Uh, the pandemic uh, is going to be with us for uh, for a while longer, and so talk of vaccine passports, vaccine mandates, uh, constitutional rights, uh, the charter, federal and provincial jurisdiction. I think we've got uh, at least a few more months uh, of this ahead of us. Uh, uh, at least, um, sorry to be the bearer of bad news just before a, a long holiday weekend.
I don't think it's anything we didn't know, Paul. Paul Daly with his University Research Chair in Administrative Law and Governance Associate Professor, Faculty of Common Law, uh, University of Ottawa. Paul, thanks so much for the time and explaining this to us. Uh, much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Obviously, there's lots of people on either side of this debate, and the real, real, real unfortunate thing is healthcare workers are getting caught in the center of this, as if their life isn't difficult enough. Uh, the CMA and the Ontario Medical Association have released a strongly worded statement denouncing the increase in nationwide bullying tactics and such of healthcare workers resulting from an escalation in anti-vaccine messaging over the past few weeks. Uh, the quote from Dr. Catherine Smart, president of the CMA, the healthcare workers who have worked tirelessly for months on end are being bullied and harassed for doing their jobs. This is wrong and unacceptable. Full stop. We are in a health crisis of unprecedented proportions. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Catherine Smart with us, president of the Canadian Medical Association and with us now. Catherine, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, thanks for take, chatting with me today. Uh, more than welcome. Thanks for taking the time. What are you hearing from members? What are you hearing what's going on in the front lines? Well, you know, I think we've seen this week protests across the country, uh, outside of hospitals, directed at healthcare professionals and their patients. And what I'm just hearing is how totally demoralizing this is for people. Uh, can you give us some example? What, so these are healthcare workers just going to and from uh, their jobs, and there's people protesting outside of hospitals for what does that have to do with the healthcare system? Well, exactly. So, yes, the protests are happening outside hospitals, asking people their workplace, stories of nurses being called murderers, um, patients you know, after six hours of chemotherapy in the hospital, being yelled at and spit on by unmasked, unvaccinated people. These are people who are immunocompromised. We've seen ambulances being blocked, trying to bring patients to hospital. Um, And, you know, and the irony is the reason right now the people inside those hospitals are working around the clock is because of all the patients filling up the hospitals again who are unvaccinated. And that's exactly who's outside protesting these very healthcare workers. Do they have a message for healthcare workers? I mean, this seems to be something that should be taken up on, on the steps of, of a provincial parliament or such, or, or wherever you want to hold your protest or demonstration. What do they have against the healthcare system? Well, that's what's entirely unclear, because as you've said, the healthcare workers, the doctors, nurses, and other professionals inside the hospitals are not the people who make policy decisions. Their only job is to care for all patients who show up, regardless of vaccination status, and that's what we're doing day and night. So I think these protests are totally misplaced. They're not achieving anything other than creating moral injury in a group of people who are already exhausted and burnt out. Uh, It doesn't appear, or does it, from what you're hearing from your members, that they don't seem to have any directive. I mean, it sounds similar to what the Prime Minister is getting on the campaign trail. The Toronto Star did an article on this, that a lot of these people are just anarchists, and and it's got nothing to do with political stripe. They're they're protesting both sides of of this. Um, Does it seem to be any different here? There doesn't seem to be an objective or a purpose or a message here, is there? 
No, I think it's just a lot of angry, confused people. That's what I'm seeing. You know, I agree. What is the message? We're against vaccination that's actually saving people's lives and preventing people from being admitted to ICUs. You know, we're we're against being able to return to our normal lives. We're against creating safe communities for our children to attend school. Like, it's unclear to me also what these people are actually against. Um, and certainly it makes no sense to be protesting the actual people who are providing the care in the hospitals. Yeah, it, it's, wow. It just seems that it's it's anarchy as opposed to, uh, you, you know, as, as opposed to a message behind the healthcare system. What how often is this happening? Uh, we, we certainly have seen the news stories on this. Uh, is it common? Is it a common occurrence across the country uh, with all levels of health care? Well, I can tell you I've been in medicine for 24 years and I have never seen a protest outside of a hospital. Um, this obviously has started this week. I think it, we're seeing it in response to increasing political moves around vaccination certificates and vaccine mandates that are, of course, designed to protect vulnerable people and our communities. Um, and, and we're seeing alongside that just this dramatic increase in misinformation and it's fueling this type of behavior. How are hospitals combating this? What can they do? Uh, security? What what sort of uh, what can we do to protect members here? Well, I think that really comes down to the politicians and law enforcement. You know, hospitals certainly are not equipped or staffed in any way to deal with large numbers of protesters. Yeah. Um, so I think that's where we're really relying on politicians to call out this behavior is unacceptable. And unfortunately, our colleagues in policing to make sure that people are actually safe coming and going from hospitals. You said that you've never seen this in your years of of uh, of being a doctor and such. Um, how long has this been going on? Uh, obviously, it's increasing. Well, I think it really started this week. You know, there was some coordinated protests across the country on Wednesday, um, and that's really the first time we've seen protests on this type of a scale. And I really hope it's not um, a preview of what's to come. What has been the reaction from members? I mean, what do they say to you? I mean, you know, you know, what you said that struck me too was, you know, they're they're harassing patients that are going to and from cancer treatment. I mean, my goodness, uh, what what has been the reaction of staff and such? Well, they've just been absolutely devastated. You know, they're looking out the windows of these facilities that they're working in twenty four hours a day out to these people, yelling and screaming at them while. Their entire work is aimed at keeping people alive. And again, the irony of it is who's in the ICU right now is people who are unvaccinated. And those yeah. are the same people that are out there yelling at these healthcare professionals. Uh, has there been any common denominator in any of these? Uh, as you look from city to city and such, is it seem to be the same organization or the same group of people? We've heard that uh, in regard to those that are following the, the, the prime minister. Do you, do you know how organized these are? Um, I would say that's not really clear to me what's exactly behind this. I mean, I think we know that the anti-vax movement at its core is highly organized, small group of people who are very good at spreading misinformation and riling people up. It's, it's very unfortunate. You know, these vaccines are incredibly safe and effective. They're probably one of the safest and most effective pharmaceuticals we've ever seen. And to have this type of misinformation misleading people who are then paying with their lives is, to me, an utter tragedy.
Uh, is there a, an issue with hesitancy uh, with members of the Canadian Medical Association? Where does that come into play? No, I mean, we are not seeing hesitancy amongst physicians, if that's what you're asking. You know, by far, over most places, we're seeing 98 to 99% of physicians themselves are vaccinated. So that is not an issue at all. In terms of addressing hesitancy with our patients, that is something we are always open to doing. You know, we welcome questions, the opportunity to discuss vaccine hesitancy with patients. Um, and as a pediatrician, that's something I've done for years, and we always welcome those conversations. But this is not that. These are not people that have questions about vaccination or yeah. a hesitant. This is people that want to be abusive and spread misinformation. This is a totally different thing. Yeah, this is just anarchy for the sake of anarchy. My goodness, it's, uh, again, there just doesn't seem to be a uh, an objective here. I mean, how can you protest a hospital? Uh, Dr. Catherine Smart with us, President, Canadian Medical Association, concerned that uh, healthcare workers are getting harassed on the way in and out of work. There's people protesting hospitals, which is uh, just bizarre, considering they are here to get us through this global pandemic. Catherine, thanks so much for the time and insight again this week. We uh, greatly appreciate it. Be well. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. What is the psychologic uh, psychology behind all of this? Let's bring in Steve Jordans, professor of psychology, University of Toronto. He is with us now. Steve, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I, I am, Scott. Good to be with you again. Can we stereotype those that are getting the vaccine and not getting the vaccine? How do you explain the way this is divided, even families? Yeah, it has. And, and I'll, I'll say explicitly my own family. So I've, I've got personal experience with this. And, and yeah, it, it is. it did start often with sort of more of a big pharma worry. And, you know, even some of those concerns, most people can understand, you know, maybe are we prescribing too many drugs, prescribing them when we shouldn't be, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but that's where a lot of the sort of anti-vax stuff started. And, and I think some of those people had valid worries about big pharma um, and then somehow through the messaging, and I, and I have some thoughts on how, but they've got pulled to this much more extreme position. And once you have people that have fairly extreme positions, putting them face to face doesn't tend to resolve anything. It tends to just make people become more polarized. How did it spread from the, uh, you know, the, uh, I guess, the fear of big pharma to what we have today? Yeah, I mean, through some very, very clever manipulation. Uh, a lot of these, you know, what we would generally refer to as fake news po- posts, they hit at the emotional level. There's almost always some dramatic thing to be worried about. You know, something's going to happen to your children or something is happening to children somewhere or this is going to cause this this horrible you know, illness to you or a family member, it, it almost always starts with something that gets somebody really upset and worried, and that sort of short circuits their, their frontal lobe, is the part that really thinks rationally and strategically about things. Um, and so they get kind of pulled down a little bit, and then they start talking to others. And, and when people with two different positions, especially very opposite positions, talk, they tend to just polarize one another. It's very seldom the case that they will convince the other person to come over. Uh, and so I, I think just over what we've had over months and months and months is this increasing polarization, especially as the vaxxers get more and more annoyed and, and are starting to introduce sort of enough is enough measures. Then I think the anti-vaxxers are really feeling challenged now um, in, in a very strong way. And then it seems that the cause gets hijacked by anarchists who just yeah. uh, want to fuel the fire. 
Yeah, I mean, this has been a frustrating thing we've had for for decades, right? This group of people who just love to find any reason to stir things up even more and and cause division. And when we kind of allow that crack in our civilized society, they will will jump in and and light a fire even worse. And it's extremely frustrating. And, And in my opinion, you know, what we have to do, we being the sort of vaccinated, I guess, is try to make this less confrontational, more matter of fact, um, and you do hear that a little bit more, this is just going to be the rules that you just have to live by, and that's okay. Not try to change them of the opinion, but instead just make their life inconvenient. Um, and convenience is the great, we, we, you know, as our cell phones show, we will trade almost everything, including almost all of our privacy, for convenience. And if mm-hmm. we just make life really inconvenient and allow them to quietly come on side, uh, in my opinion, that's the best way to, to make things work from here. That's interesting. Uh, are you surprised how uh, I'm surprised that when you announce that something's going to be mandatory and I'm fully vaccinated, I suggest everybody to do it. But I think we're getting lost in the terminology rather than what the value of this certificate or card is and, and the documentation and such. Um, uh, it, it amazes me how much this has moved people to get vaccinated, which was the idea. And I must admit that caught me by surprise. Are you? Um, not, not so much. I mean, simply because of that, you know, we're all hungry to get back to life. And as soon as, you know, we remember this with our parents, right? You'd have a fight with your father and you'd try to be negotiating stuff. But dad, I want to be out later for X, Y, and at some point he'd just say, enough. This is the rules. You'll do it this way. It's my house. <laughs> you want to live under my house. And, and that's to some extent what we're seeing with, with this Vax passport. And, and when our fathers did that, you know, we tended to shut up. It's like, <laughs> yeah. okay. So there it the is. There's the rule. You're not going to budge, and you don't want to talk about it anymore. So and not so much of, the message, but the clarity and the firmness of the message. Exactly, yeah. And, and just the sense that, look, it is that term, enough is enough. And I think we're seeing that reflected all around. The more, the more people start to think, listen, we could be on the other side. Everything you guys want, no masks, businesses open, all this kind of stuff, we want that too. And we could have been there. But it's you guys that we're not there for. And so suddenly it's it's becoming, I think, a lot clearer, you know, the dynamics of how this is all. And, and that's what I think we have to allow them to just sort of absorb rather than having it thrown in their face just to absorb like, wow, isn't, are we the reason we're not back there? Um, and the rest of us, I think, just have to have that fatherly attitude like enough is enough. These are the rules. We're not debating them. They make sense to us if they don't to you. You may you may have already answered this question, Steve, but you were talking about your own situation within family. Uh, any any advice for those who are wading into this negotiation, especially as we're coming into a long weekend and might have a barbecue? Yeah, I mean, I, for one, am largely following my own advice in the sense that I recently visited New Brunswick where, where my family member is, and, and we would normally meet and, and do stuff. But I know if we did, we would get into it. And, and I really think that is the last thing any of us want right now is to have those head-to-heads because that really makes people dig in to their position. Um, and you want to almost, we almost want to allow these people to quietly leave their position without feeling any guilt, without feeling like all of us are saying, see, he told you, you were wrong. Um, and, and so I certainly would try my best to avoid the issue. If, if you can talk about other things, and I know other families where they're good at that, um, that would be the best if you can establish ground rules. Let's just not talk about this. Um, then that's cool if it'll work. I know with in my case it wouldn't have worked <laughs> because I know the two individuals involved. So, so in other words, you do not try to convince someone. 
No, it's it's not. I mean, we were there, I think, months ago. Um, and I think with that ship has sailed, they, they have their position. And now we have to let the emotional side and the convenience, literally, of, you know, just the facts of life. If you want to hold your position, this is how you're going to live. I, I guarantee you people will quietly come over because nobody wants to live that way. And how about them Jays? Uh, Steve Jordans is with us, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, talking about vaccine hesitancy. Steve, great topic. Thanks for the time and uh, be well over the long weekend. You too, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, what are we, 76 weeks into uh, COVID and uh, 17, 18 days into the election? Uh, boy, this is killer. Uh, anyway, there's people that love it. And, you know, I must admit, you know, being uh, being the uh, political junkie I am, it is kind of exciting. I think Michael Tobe feels the same way. So we'll try to make it make it all exciting for you. Uh, Michael Tobe with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He's with us now. Thank you for the time, Michael. Hope you're doing well. I am, Scott. Hope you are, too. Thank you. Uh, it just announced that uh, Doug Ford has, or the Ontario, yeah, we're, uh, Doug Ford's Ontario uh, Conservatives have prorogued government until after the election, October 4th. Explain. Well, I'm, I must admit I'm caught off guard by that, too. I had heard they were considering it, to be fair, but I didn't know what date they were actually planning for it. I guess what they're basically have decided to do is that um, because the federal election will be held on September 20th, and we know that obviously there are going to be changes made directly to vaccine passports within a couple of days of that, September 22nd. I guess that what they're trying to do is they're just trying to make sure that they schedule everything properly, including any potential problems that could happen, the problems with, say, schools reopening and whatnot. But whenever you prorogue Parliament, no matter how you do it, either if you're trying to protect yourself politically, which is not the case here because... As we know, Ontario Premier Doug Ford and the PCs have a majority government, so they control it. Or if you're trying to sort of refresh things a little bit and readjust in certain ways based on issues that are coming up or forthcoming, which may be the case here, it never looks great when you do it. You know, I know proroguing up Parliament, I've discussed it for years and years in columns and so have many others. We all know it's legal. We all know there's a historical precedent. We know that governments have the right to do it, but it's never a good look. So Ford and the PCs have decided to do it. That's fine. Um, I'm sure they'll be hammered about it a bit as the next you know, few weeks go on. But as long as everything moves sl- smoothly via the vaccine passports, schools reopening, and whatever happens in the federal election on September 20th, which we'll talk about, in the end, ultimately, I don't think it's going to be the biggest news story around. So uh, at the end of the day, will this affect uh, policy gone going back to school? Will we still see the health minister? Will we still, still see Stephen Lecce, all of that sort of thing? Because people are, you know, like calling an election during a pandemic, proroguing government when kids are going back to school during a pandemic. Will this be labeled as such? <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, obviously, it's so early. We'll see. But I mean, whoever is a critic of the provincial government will be frustrated with them. They could do something positive, negative. They'll be criticized for it. So that's all sort of understood. I think where it basically goes into play is supporters of the provincial government and people who, generally speaking, sit on the fence, the independents, who can be swayed one way or the other, depending on what the issue entails, what the issue involves, and basically which way the winds are blowing on a particular matter and what they feel is the right course of action. So I don't know if it's going to be a big issue overall that way. 
I mean, it's going to frustrate people in the short term or in the interim. We know that. Um, but I think as time goes along, because there are so many other pressing issues, the proroguing won't be too big a deal. But yes, with schools reopening and other issues like that, obviously Education Minister Stephen Lecce has to at least have some sort of a, a presser, maybe on a weekly basis. I don't know daily if I, that's asking a bit too much. I certainly think that Premier Doug Ford, who has sort of stopped having, you know, media at certain events, I think that has to be kiboshed. And I think they have to just be more open and transparent, not because it always necessarily has to be that way. My old friend and boss, Stephen Harper, obviously had a very different relationship with the media than previous prime ministers or even, you know, prime ministers that have followed him since, that just being one, Justin Trudeau. But I think that obviously that the more open and transparent a provincial government is, let's say in Ontario, the better off you'll be. And when you prorogue Parliament, the easiest thing to do is people are just going to say, oh, the provincial government, they're hiding, even if that's not the case. So if they prorogue Parliament, fine, but show people that you're not hiding by getting out there, talking about issues. We know that Mr. Ford has said that his caucus cannot campaign for the federal Conservatives, or anyone for that matter, and that's fine. But it doesn't mean you can't still do your job on a regular basis. And I think that's what Ontarians in general want to see, a proactive government, even if they prorogue Parliament. So at the end of the day, uh, and I know the reasons that you gave for doing it, um, but what are the real reasons in the sense that this is a federal election campaign? We have seen uh, the chatter between the prime minister and premier, pick, uh, you know, get a little heated in, of late. Uh, we all know the prime minister's having a tough time and that he's looking for a fight. He's looking for a wedge issue. Is this the premier saying, yo, porch lights out, I'm not playing? Ah, I mean, again, as I said before, his critics might suggest something like that, sort of in the same vein that you've discussed. And again, you can't... I don't know. Is that is that being critical? It sounds, it sounds like it might not be a bad idea. He doesn't well, want to get caught in the middle of this. Yes. Well, I mean, he isn't caught in the middle. That's the irony. He made the arrangements, yeah. as you know, with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, that they would basically have a detente. They would not attack one another. So... He already turned, quote-unquote, the Porsche lights off that way, to use your analogy. So I think this is just going on top of it. Again, not to be a broken record, proroguing Parliament is not the best look. I agree with people when they do it. It is a legitimate course of action. It's not illegal. You can't stop it. There's nothing to turn away from it. You know, Justin Trudeau, our Prime Minister, criticized Stephen Harper for doing it way back in 08. And guess what? Mr. Trudeau did it himself. So unfortunately, a lot of politicians, at least more lately, have considered using proroguing parliament as an option, even though, again, it's constitutionally valid. It just it just doesn't look great. And is Doug Ford trying to avoid the fight? I don't think so. I don't think that's really his style. But at the same time, as premier, especially during COVID-19, um, Doug Ford has obviously tried to take a different tact in terms of the way he handles relations with opposition parties, with prime minister, with people in general, just on everyday life, and also obviously listening to medical and scientific experts, although obviously pushing back in certain ways because there's a government agenda in place. He's trying to balance a lot of different things that, quite frankly, all the provincial premiers are. It's not an easy task, but then again, going into politics is not supposed to be easy. So I don't think he's avoiding everything, 
But yes, are you saying that do the porch lights turn off, to use your analogy, because he has shut down Parliament and they don't have to be an active force during that time? You can certainly use that analogy. But as long as I said before, as long as they are proactive and continue to go out there and discuss issues that are of importance to Ontarians from schools all the way to COVID-19, it might work out in the end. But again, would I have done it as Premier? No. Um, I'm just having a hard time understanding the objective here, Michael. Like, where's the win? I'm sorry? I'm just having a hard time understanding what the objective is here. Why Why do this? Where's the win? Well, to be fair, Scott, I'm really not the person to ask. Because as I said, I would not have actually prorogued Parliament myself. Yeah. So I don't know where the win is. But to them, I think that basically they're just trying to most likely ensure that a lot of Difficult issues that we that already exist or difficult issues to come can be tended to and maybe make more of the main focus on the federal election and the period afterwards, which mm-hmm. obviously, let's say, for example, Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives win on September 20th. That would be a completely different relationship that Mr. Ford would have to build with Mr. O'Toole. That right. would give him a little bit of time to discuss it in between. That's something I haven't mentioned, but it pops up as a possibility but is it a win? No. Is it a loss? Not necessarily. Could it be neutral? Again, it depends how you handle it. As long as you're proactive, it can be neutral. All right, let's talk about the Quebec uh, debate last night. And uh, I want to start off with a question that I'm getting asked a lot. Why are, they, why are there two French debates and only one English debate? And, you know, I, I'm sure um, there, there's a, a very good logical reason. That being said, is it fair? Should there be two English debates? Should have been. I think there should have been two and two or one and one, depending on how you do it. Um, yeah. I, was, I was actually like you and like many others. I was a little surprised to hear that. Again, a lot of it comes down to the Leaders' Debates Commission. They're the ones who actually make that decision. The focus was to actually put two into French, you know, two French language debates and one English debate. It does seem a little unusual since if we're supposed to be, quote unquote, a bilingual country, you should have a balance off between the two. I mean, I've heard some reasons for it. And obviously, I would think that the liberals, if nothing else, were kind of pushing for it because they, I think they realized that they were in a bit of a, a dogfight in certain ways, and maybe they were trying to ensure that Quebec would become a major issue, which, as we saw just before the writ was dropped, there was a lot of focus on Quebec by Justin Trudeau. And that was before Aaron O'Toole's numbers, poll numbers started to soar. So maybe they sensed a little bit of something, and maybe Trudeau figured that the only way to get his majority, because in reality, this is the only reason that this election was called, because he was frustrated by his 22 months with the minority, and he wanted his oh-so-vaunted majority that he had in 2015 again, and he's paying for it badly. Um, I think that basically it is to the Liberals' advantage, obviously, and obviously to the Bloc's advantage to have more focus on them during these debates. Uh, so two French language debates helps them. It doesn't really affect Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives. The, the party would like to do well out there, but historically we've just had an enormous amount of trouble. The only times we've ever done quite well in Quebec was when John Diefenbaker was leading the PCs and Brian Mulroney was leading the PCs. Stephen Harper, you know, tried as hard as he possibly can, but my old friend and boss could only get up to a certain point in Quebec, and that's been basically what's been happening as of late, 
Although Andrew Scheer, to his credit, got a few additional seats that Mr. Harper couldn't. But Aaron O'Toole, basically for him, you know, something like a, a French language debate is a way for him to expose himself and the party in terms of, you know, what the importance of Quebec, his knowledge of French, his ability to communicate with people and debate, and to basically just come out of there with his nose clean, which is exactly what he did. He, mission accomplished for the Conservatives. They got exactly what they wanted. But uh, you're I, right. You it know, does I, look I, strange. I, I agree. Yeah, and, you know, I can certainly see the political disadvantage or, or advantage or disadvantage depending upon what party you are on. But what it does is it gets the, the electorate asking questions and saying it's not fair, which obviously just promotes more divisiveness. So uh, I, I think it's silly to even do that. It's either equal or nothing. Uh, let's talk about the debate last night and um, and your thoughts on it. Um, sure. I didn't see it. I have seen clips of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what can you tell us about your thoughts and 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 your overall impression? Yeah, I saw it. I saw it all. I mean, it was a little bit patchwork, as I admit that I'm not bilingual. Je parle, je parle un peu de français, but not a lot. So obviously, mm-hmm. I just do the the best I can to, with my limited knowledge, patch things together. Then I eventually watch the English translation, which is what I did. So when you piecemeal the whole thing, I understood most of it. I gathered most of it, and I was able to analyze it all, which was good. Um, But again, you know, looking at a leader's debate, and I know that I've said this probably to you, I've certainly said it to others, and many others have said this in the past. Leader's debates, generally speaking, do not switch or shift the political needle whatsoever. There are rare instances when it happens. The classic example that everyone looks at was Brian Mulroney versus John Turner in 1984 when they were talking about liberal patronage appointments. And Mr. Mulroney said, you know, t- you know, tut-tutting Mr. Tur- Mr. Turner, you had an option, sir. That was a moment where, although Mulroney was leading at that point, but the, the election was closer, that was actually caught by a lot of people, including even NDP leader Ed Broadbent, who was also on the podium as well, plus most of the media, as the biggest knockout blow ever conceived upon in, a, in an election or an election debate. Generally speaking, especially now, as you know, leaders' debates are so heavily scripted, they are so careful and so cautious with everything they do, they have teams that do debate prep, this is not a big secret, and they basically train their leaders to answer questions, you know, do back and forth. What if you get yourself caught in a hole? How do you get out of it? It's not because the leaders are incompetent. They're not. But you just have to be sure that you're up to date on every single issue. And you have little wedge issues or ways to either get out of a particular matter or, if you can, score some very small points if you can just push the narrative a little differently. So... Overall, this one was pretty straightforward, and I, I did set something up on Twitter very briefly about it. Overall, quickly, Justin Trudeau came out hammering. Why? Because he's behind, and he knows that he has to force the issue as much as he can. He's trying to attribute the whole reason that this election was called was because he wants everybody to be vaccinated, which, and I'm sorry to laugh, that is so preposterous that they came up with it. That's the best thing they can do to dissuade people that this was called because of him and that Elections Canada, as they've reported, we're going to be spending $610 million for Trudeau's 22-month-old government to try to bump it up to a majority, which as of right now doesn't appear as if it will happen. 
it's not a good tactic, but he tried to come up swinging as best he could on vaccines, on Quebec issues, etc. cetera. Uh, the Bloc Québécois, Mr. Blanchette, was smooth. He is, quite frankly, I- I'd say probably the best since Gilles Decep in terms of his voice, mannerisms, um, the way that he pronounces words and sentences, and his ability to interact with other leaders. Very, very good at it. You know, in the English debates, naturally he's not as sharp, but again, that's not his audience, so you can expect that. The NDP, Jagmeet Singh, he did what he had to do. He didn't do great. He probably finished last overall in the, in the debate. But he, all he needs to do is try to punch up. He's trying to increase the number of seats he has in Quebec. He knows that he's not going to be able to do, say, what Jack Layton did, or the late Jack Layton did in 2011, the great orange wave where they actually rode through an enormous chunk of the province, that being Quebec. It's not going to happen this time around, but at least, if nothing else, he held his own. He, you know, he didn't do great, but he didn't do horribly. So he can come out of there with a bit of a shrug and hope that he does better in the second French language debate. And as I said before, Aaron O'Toole, his only objective there was to go in, introduce himself, talk some French, push back on issues, score a few points, show that he knows what he's talking about, and get out of there with his nose clean. Mission accomplished for him. So in, in that's my sum up of the debate. Uh, has the Prime Minister found his wedge issue? It appears obvious he's looking for a fight with someone. He's looking for a fight for, with someone, but that's also because he's flailing. He is now losing in every single major opinion poll. And again, you have to take all that with a grain of salt, but what it shows is it's a small snapshot of what the electorate or the electorate-to-be is thinking at that moment. And quite frankly, the momentum <clears throat> is very much in Aaron O'Toole's corner. It's not in his. So for him, as you correctly said, he has to find a wedge issue or something that he can chew on really hard and take the Canadian public with him wherever it may go. He's trying with vaccines right now because his old bag of tricks, you know, trying to say that the Conservatives are extreme, they're ineffective, they're out of date, out of touch, the hidden agenda nonsense. It's not working, Scott. And any liberal who comes on and says that they're scoring points that way, they're not being honest with you. They know it privately. It's not working. So he's looking for something different. And he's hoping that vaccines or mandatory vaccination is his way out. Except that he's not looking at the fact that businesses, unions, average Canadians and others Well, many Canadians believe that we should have vaccinations. They believe in the vaccines, and many are fully vaccinated. Some are not. Some of them, believe it or not, are liberals. You know, you can use the Abacus data poll, which showed that the the most hesitant person in Canada to actually get a vaccine, and this is kind of astonishing, is a 42-year-old woman Who's a liberal living in Ontario? Now, you know, that's, thing, that, that's something that's really ticked me off through this whole pandemic is that somehow the liberals and it's, you know, it's a conservative's fault for not painting the, you know, letting them paint the the uh, the narrative. But everybody assumes that everybody who's an anti-vaxxer is on the right. right. And I can think of six people off the top of my head, acquaintances who I know are not vaccinated and none of them are conservative. It, it, and, and, you know, three, four are in the education system and two are in the medical 
political system. So it's just nuts that they paint this picture. That and again, this is just a rip off from U.S. politics because one party was you know agreed with it, one party dis- didn't. Yeah. Nobody is like that in Canada. All political parties are telling you to get vaccinated. But it's hilarious how the liberals have gotten away with painting this picture, like that all those protesters behind them are all on the right, and the anti-vax movement started on the left. Yeah. Exactly. And I know a lot of your listeners are probably scratching their heads or they don't believe it. It really is true. That's really how it all started. Yeah. This is this is not to say there are people on the right who are anti Of course. The, the right, the extreme, they're on both extremes and the extreme yeah. rights picked up on it. But, that, you know, to say it's just one is, bana- is bananas. It is nonsense. And I also know lefties, either liberals or otherwise, and some new Democrats who don't actually want to get vaccinated and won't get vaccinated. So, I don't know anyone. I don't know anyone on the right who is not vaccinated. Everyone I know who isn't is on the left, and that's just my anecdotal thing. No, fair enough. I do, so I know on both. But I know what you're saying. It's interesting when you sort of look at your own individual group and your friends, your family, and other loved ones, and how differently they think on this issue, and how different it is than the narrative that's sometimes out there. Well, you know, this is the advantage that Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives have. The mandatory vaccination argument is not sticking the way I think that Justin Trudeau, our prime minister, is hoping it will or that he hopes it will going forward, which, again, is not that people are opposed to vaccination. It's just that his way of looking at it, especially the state that the whole election was called for that reason, it's just not going to fly. So hopefully Aaron O'Toole and the conservatives will use Some of the ideas we've talked about and others have talked about to show that there's a completely different group of people who are opposed to vaccination. And guess what? They're not on side with Mr. O'Toole or that he actually just continues to use his balanced approach, which is that the Conservative Party believes in vaccination, wants people to get vaccinated, but also believes that people have a choice. Because believe it or not, Scott, and I know some people are stunned by it today. We still do live in a democracy, even though All right. our, even I some of our you. freedoms have been hindered a bit, but it's still there. So that's the way you can do it. I got to let you go, Michael. We're plumb out of time, but uh, great conversation. Michael Tobe with us, Troy Media Syndicated, columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, have a great long weekend. Thanks for the time. You too. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast, or wherever you get yours. And don't forget Scott, to... the commentary. Oh. Here's the commentary you've been waiting for. Can you believe the COVID summer of 2021 is unofficially coming to an end with the Labor Day Classic in the hammer this weekend? Like the last year and a half. Where the heck did that go? Now we have two COVID summers under our belt, and if I do say so myself, we are getting pretty good at it. It's amazing what a fully vaccinated society can do, so let's keep it going and get vaccinated. We are close, but not where we need to be, and I'm sure most thought we would be well on our way out of this by now. Not the case, but take heed. We are far better off than we were in the first three waves as a result of mass vaccination. Clearly, we cannot take our foot off the gas if we are going to continue our progress. Remember that as we take advantage of a well-deserved long weekend. And if we can learn anything about this summer and the last year and a half, there is nothing we can't do when we unite and work together as Canadians. Have a great long weekend, and we'll chat on the other side from a brand new CHML.
<laughs> I'm Scott Thompson.